0: If you ever thought you were too old to go back to school, or too old to make your dreams come true, you won't want to miss this episode. After hearing today's guest, Connie Sex Hour, you will be inspired to know it's never too late to accomplish anything your heart desires.
1: Welcome to Inspirational Visions for your dose of inspiration, endless visions, and where we empower others to never give up hope while bringing people together one story at a time here is your host who is an author and co-author of multiple books and the owner of inspirational visions llc.com mary markham
0: welcome back to inspirational visions for your dose of inspiration where we share our visions and empower others to never give up hope one story at a time Today's episode is with a remarkable woman who has accomplished many goals. Connie Sexauer is an author, co-author, and educator. She received her PhD in US history at the age of 58 from the University of Cincinnati with a specialty in urban history. The main focus of her primary research was the role of Catholics in the 20th century and the importance of faith in their lives. For 16 years, she taught U.S. history and gender studies at the University of Wisconsin, Marathon County. Connie has published articles on sports in society and several on the role of women in the 20th century United States. Her history and the St. Louis Cardinals inspired her to write and launch her newest book, From a Park to a Stadium to a Little Piece of Heaven, and is the co-author In Manifesting Your Dreams, soon to be released on December 12th, and she also has more books in the works, and she'll share with us shortly, but I do have a question on one of them, why she argues that faith makes a difference in a person's life, so she will tell us more about that. I am so honored and very pleased to have my friend, Connie Sexauer, join us. Thank you so much for being here, Connie. How are you?
1: I'm great, Mary, and it's my pleasure to be here.
0: Awesome. I always talk about, um, you know, we do learn from everyone, and as a teacher, um, every day is a school day, because we're always constantly learning. So give us a little glimpse of who you are and what you do.
1: Well, I am a retired college professor, and I'm also a mother of three grown children. And right now, I have found my path to being an author. And I have lots of projects in the works, and they're very different. I think somehow they're all connected with history, but in different ways. Um, The baseball book, of course, is the history of the St. Louis Cardinals baseball stadiums. The book I'm writing is uh, from my dissertation on Charles Batterap, and Faith Makes a Difference in a Person's Life, and I'm in the editing process of that. But even what I wrote in Manifesting Your Dreams is a part of my own history of what caused me to go to college in the first place at age 40. Hmm. And I'm also writing a book with my son. He was in a severe car accident 20 years ago and was in a coma for three and a half months, away at a hospital, uh, out of town for a year. And so we're writing about that. And of course, that's the history of our life through that journey.
0: Wow, that's remarkable. You are a woman of many talents. I will tell you that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> thank you. And we look forward to um, hearing. I want to know okay, so you said you went to school or college when you were in your 40s? Yeah.
1: Yes, I started when I was 40. Um, and of course, as I say, this is explained in Manifesting Your Dreams. Okay. But it, uh, we were, my husband and I were going to marriage counseling. Okay. And I believe I am who I am today because of this counselor. He really opened my mind up for me to be able to see that I really control my own life, <laughs> which until 40, I honest to God, didn't think I did. I was raised in a Catholic home in a Catholic neighborhood, went to Catholic schools. And my whole life, I was the third child and I was that dutiful little girl that did everything everyone expected her to do. And because my parents were working class, Mm. and my grandmother lived with us, and she was working class, their goal was for my sisters and I to marry men who would take care of us (laughs) for the Mm. rest of our lives. That was the 1950s dream. Sure. And so that's what I did. But um, after 25 years, (laughs) I divorced this man. And it took me a long time. I actually believe, and this sounds crazy to say this, I believe The very first year I was married to him, I should have left him. I loved him, but I think what I loved is who he could have been. So I tried to mold and shape him into that man. I thought that was my duty in life, and you really can't change anybody. Right. So we were going to marriage counseling, and this one evening, the counselor had me talk all night, which is not difficult for me to do. And I talked about my past. And at the end of the session, he wrapped it up and he said, I'm really glad you shared these things with me. I get to see you in a completely different light and know a lot about your past. But he said, I'm not going to let you leave this office with one of the things you said without correcting it. And I thought, it's my life. How is he going to correct what I said? He said, you claimed that your parents never gave you a college education. He said, if you were 18 or 19, I might let you get away with that. But he said, you're 40 years old. If you want a college education, go get one. And I was furious. I was so mad at him. I thought, the nerve of that man to say that to me. Yeah. My husband and I went out to dinner afterwards, and my husband looked at me smugly, and he said, well, he really put you in your place, didn't he? And then I was mad at my husband. (laughs) Right? So about three weeks later, my husband and I are taking a walk, and he says to me, I thought you were going to college. And I said, I really want to go, but I'm so afraid. Will you go with me to register? He said, nobody went with me. If you want to know what it's like, go check it out. I said, I don't even know what a credit hour is. He said, go find out. The next day, I went to the community college, walked in, talked to a counselor, and I never looked back. And it changed my life. I never, ever, and this sounds crazy to say this, yeah. I don't think I ever thought analytically until I walked in that college classroom. That, and once you think analytically and you start to examine your own life, Yeah. then you begin to realize I control everything I do, not others.
0: That is so true. It that, changed my life. That's remarkable to take that step. You, you know, we talk about um, fear in our life. And at first you were questioning, should I move forward? Should I, you know, take that leap? And you were afraid. And it's almost like your ex-husband pushed you because it was like, well, I'm not going to let him show me that I can't do this, right?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I just, I never looked back. I loved, I think it's one of the reasons I went into academia, is I loved my education path.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and I wanted to share that and help others along that same path.
0: That's remarkable. How, may I ask then, how did you discipline yourself to stay focused? I mean, um, being 40, and I'm sure you had a lot of other things going on in your life, how did you stay focused and discipline yourself?
1: Well, I convinced myself. It was interesting. I did not have the goal immediately to get a degree. I only took two classes the first semester, and it was just to see if I could pass college. And I, honest to God, never believed I was gonna go past that. But the next semester came and I took two more classes. And then by that time I thought, well, I'll get a two-year degree. And then by the next semester I thought, well, I think I'll transfer to the four-year. So I kept at first just going because I liked it and it was challenging. But then once I knew what I wanted to do, my first goal was to be a high school teacher. And I achieved that and could not at the age of, what was I, 45, I believe, I could not get a job in the city of St. Louis or the suburbs, except in a lockdown situation where police were in the schools. (laughs) That's how bad the school was. And it was in the inner city. And Mm -hmm. I decided I was not going to put my life on the line every day for my job. It just wasn't going to happen. So it was my professors who talked me into getting a teaching assistantship and then continuing with my master's degree. And my very first semester, I thought, I'm not just getting a master's, I'm getting a PhD. And then I just set that goal and that's what I worked towards. And that's what I wanted, so I just kept seeing it in front of me. I tried to figure out, you know, what would it take to achieve that goal? And then I prayed for the strength to go forward. And I had a lot of obstacles. It took me 18 years to get my Ph.D. And I had a lot of obstacles along the way. I had the death of parents. I had uh, my marriage that fell apart. And uh, my son's accident happened during that time period. Mm -hmm. And I had to take some time off to devote to that. I was about, oh... I would say a year away from finishing my PhD, I was writing my dissertation when my son had a severe car accident. And I quit everything and just devoted myself to him. And I really didn't know if I would ever finish. And at that time, I said to myself, that's perfectly all right. One of my professors taught me years ago, it's all about the journey, not the destination. And once I embrace that, I loved everything along the way, and I wouldn't change a thing.
0: That is so true. I love that. But what, it's all about the journey, not the destination. What is it, though, or what was it that turned you around? Okay, so you're, all right, fine, I accomplished that. Now I have to be here for my son What was that turning point to drive you to go back and finish?
1: He improved somewhat. And I brought him home. He was away for a year. And I brought him home. And um, I just started to feel like I could get back to my own life again. And I realized decisions he was making were his own. By that time, I'm trying to think, I think he was about 21 at that time. And, um, so I decided, okay, now I can get back to my own life and finish this and look for a job and get back to it.
0: Wow. That's remarkable. And, but I
1: do have an extremely strong faith. Um, I know one of your mottos is let go, let God. Mm -hmm. And I embraced that about 30 years ago. Okay. And once I did, I do everything in my life. I have power over my life and I understand that. But I also have the strength to realize that things are set in our path for a reason. And as long as I'm on that path and God's on that journey with me, I think I can accomplish anything. And it's what God and I want to do together. Amen. Selfishly picking something that is absolutely ridiculous. I try to pick the right things. I've actually had God laugh twice in my life. (laughs) And I have a good friend of mine, a priest uh, friend of mine who has written a wonderful book called No One Cries the Wrong Way. Mm. And it is how to get through mainly a death of someone. But he also gave a sermon one time and uh, it was on what if God could laugh. And I said to him, well, Father Joe, I know God can laugh because I heard him at least twice in my life and he laughed and he said, why does that not surprise me? The first time is I was in this 25-year marriage, and I was scared to death to divorce because I had no idea how I would support myself, what my life would be like. I was still in graduate school, but I knew it was the right decision. And before I went to my lawyer's office, I walked into a Catholic church, went to mass, turned my life over to God, and I'm up at the altar. It's dark church, just God and I. And I'm saying, please let everything work out today. Please look out for me. I've tried as hard as I could, and it just didn't work. And I heard God laugh. And I heard him say, you think I haven't been on that path, girl? I know you've tried. I have been there for you. You're going to be okay. Wow. And the next time I heard him laugh is when my son had that severe car accident. And that was probably about seven years after that. Mm -hmm. And I was in the chapel at the hospital, and I went down. No one else was in the chapel except me, and I walked to the front, and I said, God, please take care of my son. You know, I've tried everything I could, and yet this has happened to him. And God laughed. Again, I heard, you don't think I've been on that journey? I know how you've tried, and I will take care of him.
0: Oh, I have goosebumps. That's that that is a testament of true faith it really is
1: i'm blessed to have it
0: yeah i love that wow you are remarkable
1: through the grace of god
0: so what okay so you have written so much how do you or what do you do what is your must do to start your day to help you with your strong faith and on your writing? like Take us down that little journey.
1: I've heard this from Oprah and I embrace it. I don't get out of bed until I thank God for my life, for letting me wake up that day. And then I just say, be with me today. And I start my day. And each day is different, especially now that I'm retired. I'm one of those, um, (laughs) I guess, lazy people. Right now, I'm sitting around in my pajamas.
0: (laughs) Good thing it's an audio interview. (laughs) Unless
1: I'm going out. That's the most comfortable clothes I own. Yeah. And, you know, I start my day sometimes, you know, I'm going out and I take a shower and get ready and go. Other days, um, I'll write. Other days, I'm paying bills. Some days, I'm house cleaning. But as long as I'm not running into people, it's a comfortable way to live. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Sounds like a very comfortable way to live. Oh my goodness. So, um, obviously, you made mention that Inspirational Visions has their mantra let go, let God. Is there any other, like, daily mantra that keeps you going?
1: Yes. In fact, my daughter, when she was 15, I was in her room collecting her laundry, and she had something on her mirror, and it is a poem, I guess, by Charles Swindoll. And it's called Attitude. And I glanced at that. I was going through trying to save my marriage and keep a job and go to college and raise my kids and everything. And I read it and I took it off her mirror immediately. And I went up to Kinko's and I copied it for my whole family. And we used to have family meetings on Sunday mornings. And I introduced that to the family. And I said, this is going to be our motto from now on. We're going to have the right attitude about things. And it's a very long poem. It's a whole page long. I won't go into it all with you. But it really is about the attitude you have in approaching life is what makes or breaks your day. And this even talks about making or breaking companies, organizations, schools, churches, whatever. If you go with the right attitude and you embrace that, life will be fine. So she was a little upset with me because I copied it. And I said, where did you get this? And she was very defensive. And she said, why do you want to know? I said, because I love it. I think it's wonderful. So the night before I graduated with my Ph.D. in Cincinnati, I had 40 people come in from out of town. And we all stayed at the same hotel and I had a dinner the night before. And I had that poem framed and told the same story to those people. And I said, that is what has guided my children and I ever since that. And they've been through some real trials and tribulations in their life as well. And I think it's real funny. None of us for a long time have lived in the same city. My son lives with me now. He is going through a divorce and we're a support for each other. But mainly, my kids and I have all lived in different cities, and it's interesting when we talk to each other on the phone as somebody is down, we just say, go look at that. We all have it hanging in our home. And I have other friends of mine that have embraced this as well, and they have hung this in their home, and it's the guiding force of their family.
0: Well, I'm definitely checking that out. It's called Attitude Yes, by Charles by Swindoll. Swindell. okay.
1: In fact, I had it hanging on the outside of my office door the whole, my whole career.
0: That's remarkable. What a great testament. Well, with that being said, too, um, what is the most heartwarming, selfless thing you've ever seen or
1: done? I see it all the time when I see uh, parents of disabled children. And I know my uh, sister-in-law has taught the deaf for years, and I see it in hospitals when I go to visit people. There is something so selfless about people who see this in their children and devote their life to helping their children. Many times, something like this breaks up families. And yet, I would say, for the most part, it's the mother who devotes herself to that child and lives with and for that child and looks out for that child and protects that child. And when I see that, I'm overwhelmed by it. It's truly remarkable.
0: Yeah, I would agree with you. I've I've witnessed um, a lot of teachers and parents have, who um, are surrounded with special needs. And, and I I applaud them. I mean, that is a remarkable strength that um, you have to have. And all the people that I have witnessed, I mean, like when we talk about having a purpose, God truly gives those people that purpose and that gift because yes. not everybody can do that. Well, and it, um,
1: The people embrace it as well.
0: Absolutely.
1: You know, this it's so... You know, this, it, it's so they give up who they are in order to help that person become yes. who they will be. Yes. And I find that just truly remarkable.
0: It is remarkable. You're right. It's definitely a selfless act. Um, we'll go into, um, okay, so you were born and raised in St. Louis. So kind of describe that that history and vision for you that kind of like put you down that path, that journey to creating this newly released book?
1: Well, for me, it's a passion of the St. Louis Cardinals. It's really interesting. I talk about in my introduction that I was 12 years old when I went to my first ball game, and it was a girl I went to school with that invited my sister and I one summer to go to a game. And that's all it took. I have been a devoted fan ever since. But of course, as a professional historian, Especially when you write about something that you really have so much devotion to. You really have to step back and look at it honestly. Otherwise, the whole thing is this ridiculous (laughs) love story (laughs) to the team. And that's not what this book is at all. It really takes you through the different owners and society at that time and the ballparks himself. But I had such, you have to find something you love when you're an author to write about. Because in my case, I was with that subject for 30 years writing off and on. (laughs) Actually, it took me about 17 years. The time that I was teaching, when I first got my professional job up here, I was approached to turn a paper into this book. And I rejected it three times. I kept thinking, it's a graduate paper. It's not, you know, it's 30 pages long. It's not a book it wound up being almost a 300-page book. So it took a lot of research and um, numerous editing and writing and so forth. But that was really, it, I call it a journey of love, but it's also you know, a very honest approach of what the history of the team has been like. And I love writing about St. Louis. I think St. Louis is a fabulous city. I'm grateful to have grown up there. I hope one day to return there. Um, My subject on Charles Batterup, the Catholic real estate developer, is also set in St. Louis. And it's a remarkable story about faith in his life. And he was a real estate developer in post-World War II and the building that went on for homes for working class families. And uh, of course, my I'm writing a book, my son and I are, on his coma experience. And the setting there is mainly St. Louis, although part of it is also in Mount Vernon, Missouri, where he was hospitalized for nine months out of that year he was in the hospital. Uh, St. Louis is in my blood. It's who I am. And I'm very proud of that.
0: That's beautiful. I can't wait to to read it. it. It's fascinating. You can hear the passion in your voice when you talk about it and the transformation between the stadium and the, the history and you're, you said this when we met um, a while back how everybody views things differently and somebody might just look at oh okay it's a stadium it's oh we got to tear it down start over brand new new is better and if you can remember Share what you shared with me about that passion of the history and what it meant to you.
1: Well, the first college paper I wrote was on Sportsman's Park, which was the first stadium I ever attended. And when I walked into that stadium, it was so different for me. I'd heard of parks. I'd been to parks before. I played on playgrounds in parks. I went to amusement parks. But I had never knowing there was such a thing as a baseball park. And the whole atmosphere, everything about it, I loved. And that first college paper, we were to write on some experience where we would take the reader into a room or into a store or into a theater. And we were supposed to make that person feel like they were there. And it was the easiest paper I ever wrote, because I was so in love with that. And the sounds and the smells and everything about it. The neighborhood itself was a working-class neighborhood. It was a residential area, very much like for those who go to Wrigley Field now. It was set in an atmosphere in a neighborhood like that, and it stayed with me enough so that all those years later I was able to perfectly describe it and get an A on the paper and felt like I had achieved something.
0: (laughs) Wow. Wow. That's remarkable. I've been to Saint Louis a couple of times and I love it. It's um actually a, a priest the priest that wrote the forward in my book. That's where he's stationed right now. Oh and, interesting. And um yeah, so it's fascinating listening to your story and um I just I love the history there as well. Um, but the stadium's beautiful and, and I just I love how you you take it to a different level. You make it more passionate, like you are there. Um, I love how you. What I try
1: to do in my writing is—it's interesting because my professors all would say I come alive when I talk about my research. Mm -hmm. But what I try to do, and I tried this in the classroom as well. A lot of students found history boring. And the first day of class, I'd go around and say, "Why are you taking this class?" And out of thirty-five students, maybe half of them would say, "I need it for the credit." And others would say, I don't like history. I don't like memorization. To me, history is not memorization. History is telling the stories and having people bring themselves to World War II or the Civil War or whatever. And I try to do that with my writing as well. And so that it it does become a passion for me.
0: That's very cool. I bet you probably know this answer, but... Being a teacher for so long and teaching history, has anybody come toward back to you and one of those students that are like, no, abs- I know I'm putting you on the spot, um, but one of those students that absolutely hated it and then by the end of the year said, thank you.
1: Yes. In fact, it's interesting. We always had evaluations of our teaching. Okay. And there will be some comments there about she made history come alive and, you know, she knows how to bring the subject alive. But a lot of times, and this always was such a surprise, I would either get a note at the bottom of their final exam that would say it was an interesting class. Or some of my students went on to become teachers themselves. And when they were in their teaching program, they had to look back and send a note to a teacher they thought influenced their life. And I would say the majority of my teachers that I have had as students of mine either taught elementary school or if they taught high school. In fact, one of my students went on to get her PhD, which I think is just remarkable. But um, they would say that it was history that they were going to teach because they realized it wasn't a boring subject. So, yeah, it was very rewarding for me. It's interesting, though, because even in my profession, there are people that are very strong about reading their lectures and they do all this intense research. And and that's the way they teach. And some students like that. Mine was more what I followed about the teachers that I had in class that I so admired that the subject became... I, of course, had lectures. And I, especially for things like the exact percentages of the unemployed and so forth during the depression, I would read the lecture there so they knew the exact amounts. But what I tried to do is talk about it in a way that made it interesting. And you really have to own the material to be able to do that.
0: Yeah, that's, that is remarkable. And that just, I applaud you. And I am also one of those students that would gravitate to a teacher like you, Um, because I, I, I'm a visual and I want to, I want to feel it and be in it. And when you make something come to life, um, it's easy to, um, to be there. And I can, I I can see.
1: I think I was blessed to start my career late in life because I had raised children. Both of my daughters have master's degrees. My son had problems in school and never liked school. So I was able, even in my home, to figure out, you got to find a way to reach everybody. And in my educational psych classes, what I found interesting is having students of all different abilities. And even I taught a summer school in Cincinnati one time, and almost everyone that took the class were engineer students, and they were taking history to get it out of the way because they hated history. (laughs) And they liked it, and they had to write essays. And i They weren't used to that sort of thinking Mm
0: -hmm. and
1: I would help them with those. But um, yeah, I think making it interesting and finding different ways to teach it. I also showed film in class and it was interesting. I had an advisor come one time and say um, to advise and look at my class. And he was saying, you show too much film in class. You don't want to do that. He said, you're using it as a babysitter. And I said, oh, no, no, sir, I do not use it as a babysitter. I said I use it as a tool to reach certain students, that that's the way they visually learn. And I never used it as a babysitter. They had questions to follow along in the film. Then they had to write a response paper afterwards about how that fit with the class that we had. So I found a way to reach every student in my class. And some preferred lectures, some preferred the film, some preferred discussion. But I felt like if I brought all of that into the classroom, that I was holistically teaching all of the students.
0: Yes. Oh, you should just go and teach the other teachers how to teach. (laughs) Because I think that's remarkable. I think I've I've had experiences where people are just like, well, I have my degree and this is how I'm going to teach. And it's like, okay, but you know what? You're not fun. And yeah, I'm not going to get anything out of this because it's it's like all about them, not all about how to make a difference in that child's life or a student's well, life. I do
1: think learning is fun. I yeah. have a friend of mine who is a mathematician, and she taught college and high school level. And I would call her a lot when I was in college and say, okay, I would say, this is the problem. And she'd help me through the first one. And then she'd say, now go work it out. She'd say the next one. And then call me back and tell me what your answer is. So she would not give me the answers, but she would give me the confidence that I had somebody there to back me up. Yeah. But she told me that the way, and I never embraced math, I still don't, but she said the way she always looked at math is it was a game. So, you know, if you can embrace that, then that's a way to do it. And that's why she loved it, because for her, it was teaching games to her students.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Well, she made it fun. Yes, um, that okay, so with that being said, if somebody is struggling to fulfill a dream, write a book, or go back to college because, oh, I'm you know 50 years old and'm it's too late, what kind of advice could you give them?
1: Well, there is a wonderful book out that my friends and I on different campuses throughout the country have read. One of my friends found it when she was at the University of Minnesota in a writing group, and it's by Anne Lamott. And it is called Bird by Bird. And she talks about, and basically for us writing our dissertation, it became advice for us. Because how do you ever finish a 300 page book? How do you ever finish your homework? How do you finish anything? It's she had a little brother, I believe he was in fourth grade and he came home the Friday before classes were going to be let out on Monday for the summer. And he had this project and he said to his father, I'm not going to school Monday. And the dad says, what do you mean you're not going to school Monday? It's the last day of school. Why wouldn't you go? I'm just not going to go. Well, they found out the kid had a project to do that weekend and it was due Monday. So the father said, well, what is it? And it was something like 38 different birds that he had to ride on. And the father said, what did your class do that this is your punishment for this weekend? That's absolutely ridiculous. That's (laughs) overwhelming. And the kid looked at him and he said, well, we really got it on the first day of school. And what she was trying to show us is that you do a little bit every day and it'll get done. But I didn't do any of it. (laughs) So the whole family helped him with the project. They cleared off the dining room table Mm -hmm. and they'd bring him the encyclopedia and he would write it and then they'd find him and everybody helped him finish. But what you learn is bird by bird. So consequently, you know, when you're writing a book, it's paragraph by paragraph, chapter by chapter, idea by idea. And in my case with the PhD, it was taking this course, putting it on the shelf, taking another one. Pretty soon, you've got all those courses completed. But if you don't look at it like a project that you're completing step by step, it is positively overwhelming. If you would have told me even 30 years ago that this is what I would have accomplished, I never would have believed you. And I never, ever would have believed that I could finish books. And I love it. It's, It's a passion of mine. And there really is a process there. And I have a story to tell. And I'm going to tell that story bird by bird.
0: I love that. And that's that's true. I mean, think about a baby learning to crawl, and then you learn to walk. It's one movement, one step by step. And it's through that whole journey, through our whole life, this process, bird by bird.
1: Well, you know, it's interesting, too, because when my son had his severe car accident, and he was in a coma for three and a half months, Mm-hmm. He woke up at 19 with a traumatic brain injury, Mm -hmm. and he had to learn everything all over. And they had him at St. John's Hospital, and he was strapped to his hospital bed because they didn't want him to hurt himself. When they sent him down to Mount Vernon, to the Veterans Hospital down there, the nurse said to me, Do not be shocked when you walk into the room. I want to prepare you. He is in what we call a playpen bed. And I looked at her and my face lit up. And I said, perfect. Oh, my goodness, this is wonderful. Because I had read everything on the latest techniques for brain injuries and comas. Yeah. And what they teach you in these playpen beds, they don't strap him down at all. And he has to start to roll over on his own, to crawl. And that's what he had to do in order to get back to who he was, is he was in his infancy and had to learn at night to do all those things all over again.
0: That's remarkable, Connie. Isn't
1: it? Yeah, yeah, it really is.
0: Because that really makes sense that you have to start over and think about how many people that have been in that situation where their doctors or um, their caregivers are just, okay, this is where you're at, and... This is where you're going to be the rest of your life.
1: Well, and not everyone. Right. Like my son did. Sure. But uh, like at St. John's, what they did is saved his life. Mm -hmm. And then when they realized he was not coming out of the coma, there's such a thing as warehousing patients that are in comas. And they put them like in nursing homes. And if they're going to wake up, they'll wake up. If not, they're on their own. He was 19 years old. So whoever gave the idea that he should go to this veterans hospital where they were remarkable in dealing with my son. That was the best move for him. And he, you know, we owe his life to St. John's. We owe the life he has today to that veterans hospital in Mount Vernon, Missouri, and the staff that worked with him. He had lovely, wonderful therapists. Yeah. He had physical therapist, occupational therapist, speech therapist. He learned to do everything and worked with those people who were so devoted to bringing him back to full health.
0: That's remarkable. That's awesome. Well, it sounds like that book that you write with your son is going to be a bestseller because you are going to help so many people through that story.
1: I feel His it. story is truly remarkable. Um, The other thing that this book will reveal, and they did tell me when I first came to the hospital, we do not know if they can hear in a coma or not. Mm -hmm. So consequently, be very careful what you say. Always walk in in a good mood. Do not sound depressed in front of him. Do not say, oh my God, he looks horrible. Or do you think he's going to die? Never say anything in front of a coma patient like that. So consequently, I didn't, but I, and they told me they don't know thing here or not, and that all can. Michael was in a very deep coma when it's three and a half months before he wakes up. But when he woke up, it was about seven months later, and he's down at Mount Vernon, and I am walking with him on the grounds with a walker, and uh, he was a typical 19 year old teaser, and he started singing Tupac Shakur. And I find that music vulgar and insulting, and I don't like it. (laughs) And he was singing it loudly. And I said, stop it, stop it right now. This is embarrassing. And there were people out on the campus and everything. He kept singing and just smiling. So I decided to sing a church song, thinking I'll I'll embarrass him. Well, he kept singing. So then it dawned on me, he loves Sinatra. So I started singing Frank. And Michael looked at me, and he starts singing a Carly Simon song called You're the Love of My Life. And I stopped dead in my tracks, and I stared at him, and I said, how do you know that song? How do you know that? He knew every word. He looked at me, and he said, you sang it to me every day. I said, I did not. I said, I never learned that song until I went to Cincinnati and went to graduate school. And I said, I miss my kids so much, I kept playing that music over and over and over again. Yeah, He said, Mother, you sang it to me every day in the coma. <gasps> and I did. I would go to lunch. And oh. I would come back. He was in a waking coma. And he would sit up and lay down and sit up and lay down with his eyes wide open.
0: Oh, my goodness. And
1: I put the side of the bed down and I would embrace him. And I would sing that song to him. And here it is seven months later. And he knows, even right now, he knows every word to that song. It had that strong impact on him. Yeah. And then, of course, I knew then that he knew what was going on in the coma. So as we write the book, he writes his part um, and I write mine about certain topics. Mm -hmm. And he tells me that he knew we were in the room visiting him, but he actually thought he was in a dream because, of course, he couldn't talk to us, couldn't respond to us, but he knew what was going on.
0: That's remarkable. It's
1: remarkable. And when I've told people this story, it's especially remarkable if you from here on out are with someone in a coma. That I had a man who told me that his mother was in hospice in the last three weeks of her life. She was in a coma. Mm -hmm. And he said, I never talked to her because I didn't think she would know. Oh. And he said, if I had only met you before that, I said, but from here on, whoever you meet you will know that story. right? And I mean, I think it's well worth saying to people because, you know, if they can't hear you, then you get comfort from it. Mm -hmm. If they can hear you, imagine the comfort they receive.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I had that experience when my mother passed away and um, right before, like a couple hours or so before she passed. And I was talking and the kids and I were praying with her and um, a tear went down so I knew she heard me and that's uh-huh. that is my last wonderful memory of her knowing that she heard me loud and clear
1: absolutely yes so
0: yeah. that was my comment well, now
1: you know why I love writing what I write about yeah because I have a passion of getting a message out, getting a message out about my lovely St. Louis Cardinals and let it all those Millions of fans know the real history behind the teams and the owners and all of that. And with Charles Vaderot, I think his living his faith every day and building a community in St. Louis called St. Anne, Missouri, mm-hmm. and, you know, living his faith. And then, of course, with Michael and I, I just think it's a story that needs to be told.
0: Absolutely. And all of them are going to touch many lives. So... What message, besides your beautiful stories and messages that you're going to make a difference in lives, is there a specific message that you want the world to remember you by?
1: I think that anyone can achieve anything. And it's never too late. I mean, I'm 74 years old. And I raised my children. I received my PhD, I had a teaching career. I never knew what I was gonna do when I retired. In fact, I loved my job so much that I really didn't want to retire. And we've had major changes at the university where I was and they were offering early buyouts. And I went to see my financial advisor and I decided I was going to do that. Cause I thought, when do you retire? <laughs> so at 72, I retired. But then I embraced this writing career and it energizes me, and I'm having so much fun with it. And I have so many projects that I can't imagine. I want to live long enough to be able to get all my stories out there.
0: (laughs) And you will.
1: (laughs) So embrace life, know that anything is possible, believe in yourself, support others, and love. To me, loving people, where they are, giving equality and justice to all people, that's what's really important in life.
0: Mhm. I love that. I love that embrace life. I love the fact that anyone can achieve anything. Um, as long as you have faith, you can. I I think that your faith really helps you um whatever you believe. Um I know there are people that aren't um Catholics, Christians. Um they have they believe in spiritual sources um whatever that is that that brings you to giving you that hope i think it's really empowerful or empowering to not ever give up hope um that you absolutely can definitely achieve anything um if you could change one thing what would that be and why
1: I don't actually think I would change anything, and I find this interesting to say this. I've actually learned this from my 40-year-old son, because he's lived a very troubled life on drugs and alcohol and his car accident and two marriages. But he says who he is today, is, and he loves who he is, is based on the fact of all the experiences he's had. And I look at it the same way. I think everything is put in our path for a reason. And I wouldn't change anything. I, even today, don't quite know for sure where, I mean, I know I've got this writing career set out for me. I'm not quite sure if I will stay up here or I will move to St. Louis or what I will do. Um, All of that is a learning process and what will be will be at the right time. But yeah, I'm glad I'm where I'm at and I'm glad I've lived the life I've lived and I'm grateful. That's,
0: that's wonderful, because it it seems to be the common thing um, that I'm hearing from other guests as well, is we've all been through something, we all are where we are today, because of the purpose, because of our journey. And um, it's refreshing to hear that common response. I wouldn't Mm -hmm. change a thing, because I wouldn't be who I am today or where I am without
1: Well, you know, I'm also thinking of writing a book. I was going to call it The Philosophy of Others, but Mm -hmm. philosophy was always such a big word to me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And once I learned that it was really only the thoughts of others, I don't want to scare people away with that title for a book. So (laughs) I think I'm going to make it The Thoughts of How Others Have Influenced My Life or something. But the priest, not the priest, the professor that taught me about it's all about the journey. Mm Mm-hmm. It took me years. I didn't want to hear that. I wanted that white piece of paper at the end that said I graduated. So don't tell me it's about this journey. I just want to get it. Right. But in the meantime, I was living life and going through lots of changes. In fact, my divorce happened in the midst of me being in college. Mm -hmm. And when it was over and I look back on it, you know, I saw this professor about um, four months after my son's accident. And my son had just woken up. And I was at a history conference, and he approached me and he said that he and his wife can't believe that I stand. How do I stand through all of this? And I looked at him and I said, Well, through the grace of God and the support of friends and family. But I said, Also, I finally get it's all about the journey, not the destination. And so, this journey that I went on with my son with that coma, and it interrupted my life, I took a year out of my life. And in fact, interestingly enough about that, the day of his accident, a year later, he was still in the hospital. And I was, of course, watching a playoff game at the St. Louis Cardinals, and I was eating a cookie. And I brushed some crumbs off my chest, and I felt my, felt my lump in my breast, and I had breast cancer. So I had to take another year off of my PhD program to save my own life. And yet, that whole journey along the way proves just how much I wanted that PhD to think that it took me 18 years and I finally walked across that stage.
0: Oh, my goodness. So, you had breast cancer in the midst of all this as well? Yes. You are truly a gift.
1: 19 years ago. So, I am a survivor. Good for you. Michael's accident was 20 years ago this year on the exact same day that I found my lump as the day of his accident. <laughs> really? <sighs> yes. Wow.
0: That is remarkable. You have gone through a lot. Um but this is this is wonderful advice to give everybody that's listening not to give up hope because if you can go through a divorce, um have breast cancer, You know, all these trials and tribulations that are thrown at you in the midst of your goal, dream, your vision, you can't give up hope.
1: No. And, you know, the thing is, and we've talked about this, to me, it's a higher power that I believe in. Yes. And I never believe that I'm alone. I enjoy actually living alone. And people find that, oh, how can you? I go out to dinner by myself. Well, with myself, not by myself, with myself. Yeah, (laughs) I love it. um, But I also, I have the presence of God within me. Mm -hmm. And I feel like anything is possible. I, thank God, have, you know, avoided some of the tragedies in life. But the things that I've dealt with, I have never felt alone. Mm
0: -hmm. I have
1: grace of God within me. And I do, I am so blessed to have wonderful people in my life, my friends and my family that support me. And that means a lot to me as well.
0: Oh, absolutely. Well, you wanna reiterate your books, the titles, and how our audience can best connect with you?
1: Well, the first one is uh, From a Park to a Stadium to a little piece of heaven and I tell everyone they don't have to remember the title just go on Amazon and put in the S-E-X-A-U-E-R which is my last name and that's the first thing that pops up in Amazon in books. Nice. So that is there and um, then of course Manifesting Your Dreams which comes out in December the chapter I have in there along with 19 other authors are about how we have had dreams and fulfilled those dreams. And that comes out, as I say, in December. And uh, to communicate with me, you can contact me at csexauer at uwsp.edu, which is the University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point.
0: Perfect. You um, Audience, I just cannot tell you enough to... um... Get in touch. Read her book. Um, Connie is just a remarkable person. And I should apologize because you deserve to be Dr. Sex Hour <laughs> because you deserve that Ph.D. or you earned it and you deserve that title. Um, so I um, correct myself for um, not saying that earlier. So um, Well, I got
1: that Ph.D. so I could do the job. I did. I appreciate the honor of it and I certainly did work hard for it. Yes. But I don't throw it around a lot because, um, you know, we're all in this together and I don't think phys- physicians PhDs are PhDs or any high, more highfalutin or should be treated more highfalutin than anybody else.
0: <laughs> I agree with you. I, that's kind of like, um, I don't want to say like pet peeve of mine, but I, I just think that, you know, we all have our gifts, we all have something to share, and um, and we all have a purpose. And so um, a title absolutely. doesn't make you better than someone else. We're no. just different.
1: Sometimes it's, um <laughs> makes it difficult for people to get to know you.
0: <laughs> right. Because you can feel intimidated. Um, yes, absolutely. I, I was definitely one of those, but... Well, again, thank you so much. Is there anything else that you would like to share with our audience?
1: I don't think so, Mary. I really appreciate the time with you and uh, have appreciated meeting you. Look forward to reading your story and manifesting your dreams, as well as all the other authors. I think it's going to be a really interesting book, and I've been privileged to be a part of that project.
0: Yes, I'm very excited as well. Um, it's just the the people that God has put in our lives because of that book. And yes. we have Marla McKenna to thank for that. Um, absolutely. Yeah, we've
1: met some wonderful people, and we'll continue to meet them. Absolutely. Um, across the country, which is just remarkable. Yes,
0: it's not just a local area, and that's what's really exciting um, to hear the successes from the people. I think that's another thing that's wonderful is how we all get to um, learn how bringing all of us together has created successes in all of our lives during this process.
1: It's interesting because about a year ago, I came up with the idea to write a book about teachers who have influenced our lives. Mm -hmm. And I was reaching out. I have about nine people now that say they want to write a chapter. And I've talked to Marla about this, but I've also seen how much work she's put into editing this. And we actually thought it was going to be out a year ago. And all projects take longer than what you think they do. Yes. And when I see the work that she has put into this, I'm like, well, maybe that'll be on the back burner somewhere <laughs> while I think it's a really wonderful topic. It's like, oh, my God, that takes a lot of work. <laughs> right. I get all my other stories out of me first, and then maybe I can reach back and Embrace, find another nine or ten people to write on that and embrace that topic and get that story out. Because I really do believe teachers make a huge difference in people's lives.
0: Oh, absolutely. And again, that's how I started this. I mean, every day is a school day. Um, We learn from everybody through our stories, through our experiences. Um, And uh, I love, we're all teachers, in a sense. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. Well, thank you again for um, being on Inspirational Visions. I appreciate it. I appreciate your time sharing your stories. And again, um, everyone, you know, don't give up. Embrace life. Um, just love people and know that anyone can do anything. There's nothing that is impossible because God makes things possible. Mm-hmm. So um, please leave a rating and review and share this episode with someone who, who needs to hear this message today. And thanks again for listening. And as always, be inspired, never give up hope. And remember, our differences don't make us different. We're all beautiful, holy, and loved. God bless, and until next time.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of Inspirational Visions. Make sure to share this episode with someone who needs to hear this message and head on over to InspirationalVisionsLLC.com for God-inspired product gifts and also exclusive bonus content. Again, head on over to InspirationalVisionsLLC.com.